Is there something to be said about imposter syndrome? Yes, everybody has it. Like everybody has it in some way or another. Basically, it's just the most common thing in the world. Um, and so I think if we stop thinking of it as a problem and start saying, this is what it means to be human and stretching, is you think, am I, am I really doing it? Um, am I really supposed to be here? And instead of saying, oh, that's a problem, you need to get rid of it, you say, oh, look, I'm human. Look at me being human today. Um, and do I allow that to change, you know, what actions I take? No, I'm going to try not to, because I understand that this is a thing my nervous system does when I'm stretching. And this is, this is the thing that's going to arise for me. Am I going to need to get rid of it? I'm going to need to not get rid of it because it's like saying my breathing is really annoying. And so I'd like to breathe less. So what do I do? I try to figure out how to create the conditions where it doesn't get in my way. So I think that's the thing we work on. How do I recognize my imposter syndrome, understand it as a really human feature, and then move ahead anyway? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. In today's episode, my conversation is with Jennifer Garvey Berger. Jennifer is the CEO of Cultivating Leadership, where she blends deep theoretical knowledge with a driving quest for practical ways to make leaders' lives better. She speaks about leadership and complexity, coaches executive teams, and also designs and teaches leadership programs around the world. In this episode, expect to learn the mental models of highly effective leaders, why imposter syndrome is a good thing, the importance of leadership in a complex world, why adult development theory is becoming much more popular, how to deal with uncertainty, and much more. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on all platforms. It helps bring more content like this to your ears and helps us engage in insightful conversations so you can keep learning and being better every day. So with that, I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Jennifer Garvey Berger. What does it mean to be a leader? Ah, oh, Barry, right off the right off the top. Um, what does it mean to be a leader? So I think I think leadership and being a leader um, are somewhat different. So I think anybody can exercise leadership. Being a leader is often like a position um, that means that you have certain forms of responsibility. Um, if we're talking about how do you exercise leadership, I think. I think it tends to be um, something about like the outside context. Can you marshal people to move in a direction fueled by some kind of a purpose? But it also has to do with the internal condition of the people you're, um, you're with, you're leading, which is, I think, to really call yourself a leader, you have to make those people better in some way their experience of themselves each other the purpose needs to actually elevate them in some in some way so that they're they're doing things with you that they were not capable of doing without you so it sounds like from that comment alone it's not just the saying okay people are reporting to you or you're in charge of people that's not what being a leader is what really being a leader is, is the notion of people 
elevating people around you to be the best that they can be and then hopefully become future leaders themselves so they can go off on their own and do whatever they need to do to become you know leaders or 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 individuals that were that have improved themselves and it may not necessarily be leaders they don't have to be leaders themselves but at least if there's some sort of improvement along the way and they've been able that okay the what they were initially has now transformed into something better and the output is bigger than the input um i think it feels like that's what uh, being a true leader is and it sounds like there's also and the notion of well if that's the case then how do you then become a uh, a leader that has those attributes because i don't think that everyone is born with those leadership qualities so what does it mean to develop those qualities but also have some sort of innate predisposition to being a leader as well yeah i think i this question of are leaders born or does leadership grow is is always a question on people's mind um and of course there are some some as you say in eight qualities or capacities that people have that move them in a kind of leadership direction um i think a lot of the discourse on our leaders born comes from like old monarchies and old systems of keeping powerful people in power so so I'll, i think a lot of it falls into that kind of bucket that we'd like to get rid of but i think that there are of course people have different kind of qualities or characteristics that they're naturally gifted naturally gifted at and um there are certain forms of leadership that would be in those buckets leadership uh a capacity to take other people's perspective to understand what motivates them to listen well you know all of these things um would contribute to your ability to lead well and every one of those things can be grown and in fact necessarily has to be grown one of the best leaders i've ever worked with was probably incredibly naturally talented super smart self-aware person um and as his job responsibilities grew he had to really push on the edge of his capabilities as a leader i think all of us have to do that if we are leading something that's growing we ourselves also have to be growing what about the the is there some something to be said about emotional intelligence then because if you're listening to if you have to be someone who uh talks to people who engages with others there has to be some sort of eq notion uh, as part of that but at the same time when we speak about eq there is definitely an uh, a part of that says well you know how do you improve your emotional intelligence is it is it through just practice and and just getting the reps in to or is it actually something where someone has to go out of their way and really um put the effort into building um their emotional intelligence because i i can understand there are a lot of people out there who are just born with this ability to really gravitate towards people and 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 in the opposite direction as well but then there are others who have to work at it and they have to really hone that skill um you know is emotional intelligence really a key part in in being a good leader yes i I mean being able to um understand respond to uh 
help shift your own emotions and the emotions of others is a profoundly important part of being a good leader. Um, is, is some of that possibly innate? Some of that's possibly innate, but a lot of it is developmental. A lot of that is about how we grow and change over time. Because you could see a really emotionally intelligent three-year-old, but that really emotionally intelligent three-year-old will not be like the same will not be ex like exuding the same characteristics or qualities as an emotionally intelligent 43 year old, right? You would not expect those two to be acting the same. So we can see there that there is something that you can see early and that it has to grow and develop over time. And so um, this question of how are we growing and developing over time, I think becomes the core question. Let's talk about uh, adult development theory. I know that you've done a lot of work on this in your books, in your research, and just doing um, studies on leadership in general. I know there's a lot of people who've heard of child development theory, and that's really key in, in really encouraging and nurturing the growth of our children. But a lot of people say, well, if I'm an adult, I'm pretty mature, I already know what I'm doing, but that's not necessarily the case. So can you explain a little bit about what adult development theory is and how does it interrelate with leadership? Yeah, child development theory is so well known. I think also it's so easy to follow. You know, I, um, I had a baby my first year of graduate school and uh, I was studying adult development theory at that time. And first of all, when I came into adult development theory, I was like, I had no idea that this happened, right? Like this, this was a mystery to me. And then I'm looking at this infant and I'm like, oh, it's so fast and easy to see the way she's growing and changing over time. Whereas with adults, it's really hard. Like you really have to know what you're looking for and you really have to understand what is it that's growing and changing over time. Um, but once you know what to look for, it is, it is there for you. Right? It is a it is a parent, um, and in fact, all of us have an adult development theory in us when we think, "Oh, that person is very mature," or "Wow, that forty year old is acting like a child," or you know, whatever kinds of "Oh, that person has a lot of wisdom," or even something that we you hear a lot in the leadership circles like gravitas. This person has a lot of gravitas. Um, what does that mean? Often, this means this person is is growing is is developed in some way and so we have a a sense of it but most of us don't have a um a grasp of the theory of it because the theory is kind of tricky so does it come back to being self-aware because if someone does have if if you, what you're saying is that there's definitely an element of adult development theory in all of us that we can tap into and we can say, okay, we can potentially improve ourselves. We can, you know, the person that we're in, that we are in five years' time is going to be drastically different from the person now. Um, then how does someone tap into that? And how does someone try to really hone in and, and, and continue to really tap into that sort of adult development notion of it? How, is there something to be said about, um, you know, again, that self-awareness? Um, because for a lot of people, they don't really know 
what they're trying to be. I mean, they, they have this sort of mindset in mind, but at the same time, what is it really that they're trying to develop into? Is there a framework that people can follow, I suppose? Yeah. Yeah. It's great because the, the reason adult development is relatively invisible to us is because it's a thing we're not generally doing on purpose. Like we see a child, a child is learning to walk and we see the steps of what learning to walk might be. And we see what it looks like to not know how to walk. And then we see what it looks like to know how to walk. And we, so that's the, the outside world. And we kind of are familiar with that. We're also kind of familiar with what it is to, um, to have a capacity that you, you are growing into. Like you see um, some of your listeners might be familiar with the, this marshmallow challenge where you, you put a marshmallow in front of a, of a child and you say, don't eat this marshmallow now. Uh, I'm going to come back in five minutes. And if you haven't eaten it, I'm going to give you two marshmallows. And you see that some kids have this capacity to like wait and they often stare at the marshmallow or they distract themselves or they like tie up their hands or they talk to themselves. They, they're, the videos of this are hilarious. Um, and some kids just eat the marshmallow. Right. But that's actually a developmental concept, right? Like, can I, can I stand to withhold my impulse in this moment is a developmental comp um, competency and you see kids grow into it, but we don't have the same uh, set of distinctions mostly about adults, right? This question of, am I referencing you to know how I'm doing or am I referencing myself, which is a core adult development question we don't tend to notice that because we tend to think, oh, I'm just being me. And so this, the, I, I think the two things that you need in this place are um, a map to see how my, like, what does this terrain look like? What even is it that I'm trying to reference against to see, am I doing this thing called growing? And I think we need some kind of a mirror right? Like what is the thing that shows me me in a way that I can make sense of? And without, without a map, I think it's really hard to figure out what are the capacities I'm supposed to be growing. And without a mirror, people, people who read adult development theory very often come to me and explain to me how they are at the highest stages of development, right? Like that their, their natural impulses. Oh, look, I have like, I'm on the mountaintop. Whereas a, a mirror might suggest to most people, we are not on the mountaintop, right? Like we are not there. This is some, some distance ahead of us. And so I, I think these questions we could ask ourselves as we're thinking about adult development theory is do, do I have some kind of an idea of how people grow? Do I have a map and how would I know where I am? Mm, yeah, I think the navigation part is probably the hardest. And you mentioned the map, and and people don't have a map. They're really just going. It's a blue ocean for them, and they they did exact. They have no um, north star or compass to to guide them. And that's been terrifying because, especially for me, without having before reading some of your materials and and learning a bit more about myself and being more self aware. 
I had this vision of myself being a better person, but what does that better person look like? You know, are they more confident in speaking publicly? Are they smarter than they were? Are they uh, more well-spoken? And so there was a lot of attributes that I wanted to embody, but not necessarily know how to get there. And I think that self-development phase and, and, and knowing oneself has really given me the ability to say, oh, okay, maybe there is a path, there is a framework that I can use some of these mental habits that um, you, you speak about in your books as well. And maybe we can sort of double-click on those mental habits as well. What are some examples of mental habits that people can actually use to really tap into their developmental framework uh, to, to become not necessarily leaders per se, but better people than they currently are right now? Yeah, it's a... That's the fun thing about growing is it it lets us be better than we were before, right? The um, these my um, colleague and friend and uh, business partner Keith Johnston and I wrote a book called Simple Habits for Complex Times, and uh, and as we were doing the research for that book, we we were trying to figure this out, like what kind of habits could I develop that would help me stay on a growth path of some kind. And we came up with three that are well supported in a variety of different literatures. And the thing that's cool about them is we were asking two questions at the same time. Keith was asking a kind of outside question. What are the qualities or habits that I could engage in that would help me lead better through complexity and uncertainty? And I was asking a kind of an inside question. What are the qualities or habits that I could develop that would help me grow myself in some way to be further down this adult development path? And it turned out they're the same, which is cool, right? That's good because we get bang for our buck. It both makes us better outside and it helps us grow to be um, a, a, a bigger instrument, a more capable human on the inside. And we 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 came to three that met those um, that met that double requirement. The first one is asking different questions. There's a set of questions you ask. You don't even notice that you're asking them. Noticing what your questions are. Sometimes our questions are, "How can I get them to like me?" Sometimes our questions are, "How can I get them to respect me?" Sometimes our questions are, how can I, as you said, be more well-spoken, be more confident? How can I be more confident? There's a set of questions we carry that we don't even necessarily notice that we carry. And then we can begin to expand that question. We, a, a lot of people introduce our work and say we help people ask better questions. We were really careful not to say that these were better questions. They were different questions because the... Uh, a developmental question for you might be one that I just automatically carry. Mine's not better than yours. It's just developmental for you because it's not yours. The questions you carry automatically might be developmental for me, not because your questions are better than mine, but because they're different than mine. And so mm -hmm. how do we get a different set of questions? So that's the first habit. Got it. So it sounds like there, it's, again, it's, it all comes back to sort of knowing what to ask, knowing 
what's really um, what's what's an area of your life that you want to address and then formulating a question around that and then from there being able to identify exactly what answers to seek because I think finding that problem is probably the hardest is is asking the right question that's and, right and then and then being able to say okay I understand the question now I need to do my research and go out there and look for those those signs those signals uh, to to f to find those to find the answers to that one. What's what about the second one and the third one? Yeah, um, let me just say one thing about asking different sure. questions. The um, the the thing that I've seen that's worked best for the leaders I've worked with is to notice when somebody asks you a question or has a question, and you think that's a great question. Every time you mm -hmm. have that thought, that's a great question. Grab that question. Whatever it is, whatever it is, um, grab it because it's it. It's actually not in the answer to the question, right? It's it's actually in the carrying of the question. Uh, Bob Keegan talks about there are some questions we answer and some questions that answer us, and it's this this how do we get to those questions that actually having it like one one example of this is this question of who am I becoming. Right. This is a question you can't answer. This question, it's not, but that it can answer you. Right. Like as you as you ask this question, you have a different relationship with your future self, and mm -hmm. it begins to grow you. So there there are questions that you'll stumble upon, and carrying them as things that help you examine your world and think about yourself and your leadership in a new way is useful. That's the first one. I'll, I'll be fast with the second one. Um, the the second one that turns out to be of like just huge importance, both as a leader in how you deal with the outside world and as somebody who's growing themselves to be better, is taking multiple perspectives. How is it that I can take your perspective um, without having it either? Uh, swamp mine so I become your perspective. I just carry you instead of carrying me. That's not a win. Or defend myself against yours. Like, oh, if I were to carry that, that threatens something in me. And so I need to talk you out of your perspective or I need to move away from it. We see that a ton in political discourse, right? Political discourse is completely filled with your perspective is repulsive to me. And so I'm going to keep myself as far away from it as possible, as opposed to saying, wow, these two perspectives must create something bigger, right? Like mine and yours create something bigger. How can I hold yours and hold mine so they can stretch to hold the bigness of the issue and understand more? And uh, a leader who can hold these multiple perspectives is actually growing themselves in some way. And a leader who can hold those multiple perspectives can tend to find new pathways, which we call innovation or creativity um, or stakeholder management, right? All of these things that are so necessary in leadership are found in this uh, capacity that we can be born with and that we have to grow and grow and grow and grow basically every day. So one question I did have for you was 
the ability for leaders to accept criticism. And I know that there are a lot of people out there who are leaders, but sometimes their ego can get in the way. And for them, it's very hard to see the forest for the trees in a lot of ways. And they are sometimes so fixated on their own opinion, their own perspectives, their own line of thought, that they are, uh, it's, they find it hard to accept other people's opinions and criticisms, whether it be in the workplace, could be in schooling, whatever it may be. How do you, how do you educate it? How do you teach people to to do that? Again, is it is it does it go back to some people are just better at it than others, or is there a way to think about these types of habits and and practice them? What's the best course of action for someone who's trying to be more open? to different types of thinking? I mean, the first thing is, are they trying to be open to different types of thinking, right? Like this, this is now a question they could carry. Am I trying to be open to different types of thinking? That's a good question. And to carry that question is very useful. So once I'm carrying that question, am I open to different types of thinking? Then I can see uh, how am I displaying that openness? And very often, Criticism makes people defensive, right? Mm -hmm. That this is just what happens. What happens is criticism says you're doing something wrong. Doing something wrong is a threat to your identity, minimally to your identity. And it alerts your body to be like defensive. Like, oh, there's a threat. You need to defend yourself from it. Mm -hmm. Now, some people defend themselves by um, ignoring it. Some people defend themselves by like actually becoming visibly defensive. Some people defend themselves by rolling over and taking it. Oh, you're right. I'm a terrible person. I know this. I was never any good anyway. Right. right? But all these are forms of defensiveness in, in one way or another. The question is, can I notice that I'm doing that? Can I notice what my habit is? Can I notice it? And then can I hold off from that for just a moment, right? Just a moment and see what could I take in here that might help me learn? What, what is there to learn here? Which is another useful different question, right? As opposed to how is this person wrong or how have I been wrong and I should be ashamed? The question is, you know, how, there's something to learn here. There's a difference of opinion. Can I recognize there's a difference of opinion and, um, and hold on to it long enough so that we, so that I could learn something. And then for bonus points, how do I help this difference of opinion we have help us learn about each other and deepen our relationship? Mm -hmm. And this, this question of how can we use feedback for both of us to learn, I think is in some ways the, the most advanced form of leadership conversation because then everybody's growing all the time, and that is where you've really got a rocket ship. And I think, and speaking on top of that, I think the byproduct of that type of acceptance criticism, but being open to that criticism, is that both sides get better from that experience. And if if I'm speaking to a leader and they're open to my suggestions, my thoughts, I feel more comfortable, I feel more relaxed in their presence, and you somehow have now, um, you're sort of on the same wavelength, so to speak, you're exchanging ideas, because you have no, uh, 
you know concern for recourse on their side they're not going to shut you down and you are at ease and you can really um really challenge each other to be better people and i think that sounds like that's an attribute to what you mentioned being a leader is all about at the end of the day i mean so here you point to uh maybe an even more sophisticated move which is when there's a power difference between us how do i enable you to give me feedback mhm um which is uh the research will tell you that the higher you get in an organization or the higher the power di- differential is the less feedback you get the less people are willing to tell you things they fear you don't want to hear and so this is uh th- this is like the more dangerous the road is the fewer um the the smaller your windscreen is basically right like as you lead things get more and more dangerous more and more difficult and the amount of information you have shrinks shrink shrink shrinks i have often asked in you know in a room of the top 300 leaders in an organization let's say i'll say how many of you know something about your boss that it would actually be very helpful if your boss knew basically 100% of the hands go up right everybody knows something about their boss that would be helpful if their boss knew it everybody knows this and then i say how many of you have told your boss this thing basically 98% of the hands go down and people start to get really nervous because if they're in the same company they're looking around and they're you know they have some direct reports in that room and they saw those hands go up and they saw those hands go down and so then the question is how can i uh, create the conditions so that people can tell me things that they think that i don't want to hear and as a leader this is a particularly challenging and important thing to do what about the uh you this so you mentioned there were three mental habits what's the what's the third one and and uh the one that's uh yeah, the one that's really going to well you you mentioned two but I'm really interested to see if there's an interrelation with the third one or is it separate there is an interrelationship of course um because it's a system the third habit is about how do we see systems mostly um when humans look at the world they look at um simple cause and effect basically um and they look at individual actions and individual moments and we we do that thing which is great in all kinds of forms of science of like plucking something out and examining it um but complexity and humans are filled with systems that are interdependent that are interdynamic in some way so So here the question is can I resist the human impulse to to take things apart and examine them piece by piece and can I look at what's more important in a complex adaptive system like a an ecosystem or an organization or a family or almost everything we care about um and can I look at the relationships between things can I look at the dynamics across things can i see that that person who was so annoying in that meeting is not necessarily an annoying person but actually is in a constellation of things maybe that person is saying things that other people are afraid to say maybe that person is um 
in a part of the organization that's in trouble right now and I need to pay attention to it. There are like a whole set of possibilities in our dynamics that are incredibly important. And to be able to stretch our minds open to do a thing that our minds resist uh, is both developmental and also very useful for leading. Let's talk about a little bit about uh, going off the off those three mental habits. I'm really intrigued to understand a bit more about complexity, about uncertainty, and about chaos. And obviously, in this very fast changing world of technology, of politics, of bureaucracy in general, and just the changing landscape of things, especially in the business world specifically, perhaps in the political world as well. What does it mean to be a leader who can adapt? Because someone, and I know that there's old adages that, you know, adapt, you know you've got to be able to adapt in order to, to innovate and succeed. Uh, uh, if you fail to adapt, you will die. So I'd like to understand a bit more about the sentiment behind leadership when it comes to adaptation around the changing world around them. And how does one even think about changing their mindset, their perspectives on things when they're being bombarded by things they cannot control? And for example, right now is the economy. You know, you've got rising inflation, you've got job losses, and being able to adapt and be able to continue to drive a business forward in these changing circumstances, what's there to be said about that? My goodness. So this this question you're asking here is basically the inquiry that has fueled my entire career, like all the research I've ever done and all the books I've written. And so... Um, so we could talk about it for a long while. Um, uh, the, the first news, I think, is we can get better at this, right? This is one of those capacities that grows. And, um, and the second piece of news is we have to. As you're saying, mm -hmm. I, th this is not an optional growth path for us. I, I used to actually believe that this was optional. And so I used to say, this is optional. Like if, if you don't want to be growing, to be better able to handle complexity, uncertainty, change, uh, disorientation, um, you know, work in a job or sector that doesn't require this. This is, this is a choice you have. I'm not sure this is a choice we have anymore. You know, we, we didn't have a choice about dealing with the, the disorientation of COVID. A lot of people would have put their hands up to say, I'd like to get off of this bus now. You can't get off this bus. You pointed to inflation. We don't have a choice about dealing with that. We don't have a choice about dealing with climate change. Like all these things are happening around us and we can't get off that bus anymore. And so this question of how do we grow better able to handle these things, I, I think becomes a human question as opposed to a sector by sector question for leaders to be asking. Um, the other thing I've found in my research that, anyway, I think is super interesting, uh, is, that it, is that the first thing we need to deal with is the way our body uh, understands, makes sense of complexity and uncertainty as a threat, right? So our mm -hmm. body thinks it's in danger. 
and uh, and understanding that uncertainty is perceived as a threat to our bodies is, I think, very helpful because we can start to make sense of, oh, what's going on? My body is actually feeding me something um, because I'm I'm afraid. We don't notice that we're afraid. We think, oh, we have to do something. Oh, we have to move. We have to roll out something. We have to reorganize. We think we have to take an action. But actually, the first thing we have to notice is my body is agitated. Like, and my body is creating a, a sense of agitation in me that that says I have to move. I have to do something like creates this action urge in us because for most of human history, when we were agitated, it meant we needed to move right now. There's big inflation. You don't have to move, right? Like you, you could do nothing, but we, um, but we find that really hard to do. We find that really hard to do. And so the, the first thing I think we have to do is begin to notice what goes on for us when we're facing into complexity or uncertainty, and then think about what are the shifts we want to be making. Yeah, that's so interesting. Again, like it's it comes down to the individual. It comes down to knowing that there are factors that we cannot control or the factors that we have to accept. As you mentioned, there's a bus. We can't get off it. It is what it is. And but being able to understand why it's happening, how does it affect me? What can I do to better uh, sort of improve my chances of success down the road, or at least not just not just thriving, but surviving right now? And being able to say, okay, these are the circumstances that I have to deal with, and then being able to use those circumstances and, and turn that into a positive. And I feel like. That's obviously one very hard. It's easier said than done, but two, it's still also a a mindset to have at the same time. Because I don't know, and maybe you can say something to this is what about you know, there are people out there who are very resistant to change and they don't want to. Maybe they're maybe maybe they're in a position where they have to adapt, but they just cannot. You know, how do you how do you encourage them? How do you tell them to to really push them in that direction of like, well, it is what it is, and you can't really change the circumstances around you. But you know, being able to position yourself better is is the only way to go. Um, but again, there's a lot of people who are resistant to that. What, what do you what do you say to them? I mean, like so many things in our complex world, this idea of change resistant is in other contexts thought of as like uh, stable or steady or um, or even able to plow through difficulty. Like the, it has such a bright side and it has a more shadowy side that says, and sometimes you do have to actually change and those people tend not to be so good at doing that actual change. And so, um, how do you help people become more able to change this again, like Barry, as you, as you've brought up from the very beginning, this idea of um, being more self-aware, most people don't consider themselves change resistant. They consider themselves stable or they consider themselves um, strong, right? They, they don't mm -hmm. have a self-concept that says, yeah, like I'm terrified of change. And so I'm very change resistant. They have a concept that says you're an idiot for trying to push this new thing. So stop doing that. And I'm going to hold t steady to my core 
and, and get you to stop. Um, so self-awareness helps us uh, check in with the outside world and see, are we, are we right or not? Are we right? Or what, what part of our thinking needs to maybe shift a little bit? Once we've been able to be self-aware with am I, am I resistant to change? And by the way, spoiler alert, we are all resistant to some kinds of change, right? Everybody is resistant to some kinds of change. It's easier to see people's resistance to change if they're not you, because you're being resistant in a way that doesn't feel like resistance to you. So once we figure out what kinds of change are we resistant to, then we can begin to work on that. We can begin to ask different questions about that kind of change. Notice when we say this is a stupid idea or we've tried this before and it didn't work then or um, everything's moving too fast. Uh, notice those kinds of judgments we have and ask a different question. Oh, how is this not a stupid idea? How, how is it that this is a new situation? And so the fact that we've tried it before is actually mostly immaterial right now, etc. We can ask a different question. We can take a multiple perspective. We can say, uh, how is this person um, who's offering me this thing that's annoying me in some way? This is what change resistance feels like in the inside, annoyance, right? Or anger, like you're pissing me off. Um, they think you're being change resistant. I think you're being an idiot, right? Like how, how can I take the perspective of this other person in some way? Uh, my my capacity to intervene in these organizational situations is incredibly helped by the fact that I can take the perspective of people and realize, oh, they're scared. Mm -hmm. They're scared. And how do I how do I handle that scaredness and help them um, do a thing that is scary? So asking different questions, taking multiple perspectives, seeing the way the system itself is uh, change resistant. I have a ton of organizations I work with that are setting things up or working on a culture change that goes in this direction. And then their, um, their promotion policies and their bonus policies go in this other direction, right? And they don't see that, that the, the system itself is working against the change they're trying to promote. And they start blaming individuals like, oh, that person's so change resistant. No, no, actually there's a ton of change resistance built into some of the systems inside the organization. Fix those and you're gonna fix some big percentage of change resistance. Um, so how could I see systems and act in that way? Yeah, I mean, they, so that's an interesting point where and something that I've seen as well, especially in technology companies that are sort of getting off the ground, they're building the companies and they're really building the foundations at that point, which is going to set them up for the future, future success or future failure. So, but it really, really comes home, beats home to me about what does it look like where you have these systems that you've put in place that from a high level, from a leadership level, you want to promote you know, some cause, some some way forward. But then deep down, you've got these underlying foundations of, you know, pulling you in the opposite direction. And that's been really hard. So I guess maybe my question is really about for the leadership team, what things can they do better to really, again, be self-aware about what's happening here? 
but also take initiative in trying to understand what they've implemented here to to really help drive the company and the team and all of its employees in the right direction. Because it's it's really hard when you have layers upon layers upon layers of bureaucracy that things start to get really complicated very quickly. So it's been it gets very difficult for the leadership team to one think about it and to to do anything about it as well. Yeah, and here's where there are some complexity principles that can be really useful, mm-hmm. which is in a complex system, if you go directly into kind of the center of the problem, like we we often are looking for the root cause of something. In a complex system, there's no such thing as root cause. This idea is not very helpful. Um, and in fact, can be really harmful. I, I was working with a team once, they were having trouble in the organization and in the team with trust. They decided that the root cause of their trouble with trust was interruption. They had an app that told them how they were talking. It turned out there was a lot of overlapping speech. And so they decided that they would attack this by making a rule that said no more interrupting. And whenever anybody interrupts, you need to tell them that they've interrupted. And so what happened? Um, Interruption plummeted right? Because people were told that they were interrupting. And conversation on the team got bad, right? Because everybody's thinking, can I talk now? Can I talk now? And everybody's like so obsessed with when can I talk that they stop being able to have free-flowing conversations. And because they're always tattling on each other, to each other, trust goes way down. And so they, the, the search for a root cause, and then the trying to solve that root cause in complexity almost always has these perverse, unexpected effects. Right. And so for your leadership team dealing with these system-wide effects, the idea is not to look at the root cause, but to look at what are the pieces that are contributing to this. If you think about contribution instead of cause, this is useful. And then if you think about experimentation, nudging, how do I nudge some of those pieces? Some of those pieces might be more influenceable than others. And what's an experiment I could run to see whether this would happen? As an example, uh, I was working with a large organization and they had this very strong um, perfection, uh, let's, let's call it a perfectionist um, quality where people would spend weeks perfecting slide decks for presentations. And, um, and there was just a lot of, a lot of investment in like looking buttoned up, like looking like you had it all together. And, and they were a company that needed to innovate. This is not a great innovation skill right? Like looking perfect is not a great innovation skill. And so they were like, we're going to try things, but you can't order that. You can't, you, you can't mandate it. Um, and so what the leadership team tried is we're not going to look at your decks. When, when you prepare a deck to come to talk to us on the team, we're not going to look at it. We're not going to use your deck. Then they said for, for the next two months, we're not going to look at decks. We're going to see what happens. Is the world going to fall apart? 
at our next two leadership meetings if we don't look at anybody's deck. And it turns out people are like, wait, they're not looking at our deck. What are we going to do? We're going to have to have a conversation. We're going to have to talk to each other. And suddenly, instead of perfecting, they started leaning into what's the conversation we need to have? How can we have a real conversation? What do we bring to that real conversation? Um, and that little shift, which, you know, now they've backed off from, you can bring a deck if, if a deck is necessary, but only bring three slides, whatever, right? Um, has begun to have pretty significant system-wide effects across the organization. Hmm. No, that's, yeah, that's really key. And I think, you know, as, as you mentioned with your anecdotes and your stories, it seems like the people, there's a lot of people out there in corporate America, sort of around the world, who are trying to implement these policies, but you just don't know until you actually experiment and find out. And, and that's really the key here is trying to understand and, and sort of iterate and say, okay, well, if this doesn't work, then maybe there might be something else that's contributing to this. And and I love when you say you can't really go to the root cause because you're really shooting yourself in the foot at that point because you think everything's due to this one singularity of a problem that's going to solve all of your issues as long as, as if you can find it and get rid of it. But for the most part, it's impossible because there's it's so dynamic and it changes all the time. And there's so many factors and layers um, that make it so difficult uh, to do that. So I think that's that's really key there. Can we talk about a little bit about leadership in the education space? Um, one thing I've been trying to really uh, dig into, and it's just not lead, just leadership, but when every guest comes on, where they're talking about the topics that they love, I find it difficult that to believe that these things are not taught at an earliest uh, stage in people's lives. And for me, going through school, college, university, high, higher education, you don't really learn about leadership. Um, maybe there are some leadership classes, if you can find any, but it's not as part of the core curriculum. And so I wonder why that's the case, um, but more so, why has it been taught um, in schools much more diligently? and? And is there an, an, an argument to think about teaching leadership on a more broader level at a much earlier stage? Oh my goodness, it's this is a very big question. Um, again, we could talk a long time on about this question. Um, So I, I, I will say, uh, I'll answer in two different, with two different examples. One example is there's a, a researcher in the adult development phase called, in the adult development area called Marsha Baxter-Magolda. She's done the most extraordinary work. And her work suggests, she, she began her research with college students um, and followed them for 40 years did a study where she followed these people for 40 years, talking so to them about their lives. Study. Exactly. Um, and the thing that she found is that the earlier they grew, the happier they were, right? Which 
you can you can see the sense in that the 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 earlier they reached what she calls self authorship the better able they were to handle their careers their marriages their children their partnerships their businesses the the whole thing and so she tried to get um universities to encourage this growth right um because if they develop it if universities can be a part of growing people and that would be that would be good and it is kind of in the university mission as it is in the education mission generally um and she really struggled she really struggled we really struggled i was on a committee with her we really struggled to to be able to convince people in a university that this idea of growing the inner person was part of their job as opposed to growing the um the knowledge base which is kind of what people in universities thought okay so then maybe you think well earlier in education they're they're really trying to like they teach kids stuff like self control and you don't hit each other and you know we're we're teaching them ways of being so maybe we lean into that and i was in new zealand in educational research uh when new zealand um put out a new curriculum which had a lot of these pieces in it in fact a lot of these developmental pieces in it and i was both um a researcher of this change and i was also a parent of kids in a school um and as a researcher of the change i watched that the change was having a hard time influencing teacher behavior and as a parent in the school i noticed that when teachers tried to bring some of these ideas into the classroom the other parents got mad and we had like meetings after meetings about how it's not the school's responsibility how dare you teach this thing or that thing and these are things like you know listening to each other right they, these are not like uh devil worshiping kinds of activities right um uh these but they were things that had something of a moral line and the parents were saying you can't you can't be in this moral space with my child and just teach them maths right like just teach them to spell this is your job and so there's this real question i think in our society right now about where is the location of these lessons is it in a school is it in some kind of morally um sanctioned setting like a religious institution is it in some kind of a special program that one goes to which is like where leadership often gets taught in these like um special places um and until we as a society figure out that leadership is happening all the time and we can either be good at it or less good at it and it's happening in playgrounds and it's happening in college classrooms and it's happening in organizations and and it has a moral overtone whether we like it or not we can't avoid it until we get really clear on those ideas i think we're going to still struggle to figure out where do you teach this thing it's not obvious do you have a personal take on where you think this stuff should be taught i think it should be taught everywhere i i 
I, I think this is why Keith and I really work to have these simple habits be um, teachable everywhere. You can actually teach them to little kids, right? You could actually teach them at schools. And, um, and while they have a kind of a moral possibility, I think they're relatively agnostic. Um, you know, taking other people's perspectives is a useful quality. Asking different questions is a useful quality. But each of them, you can see in each of them how they might wander into territory that scares people. Like, what if I ask, what if my kid starts asking questions that scare me? What if my mm -hmm. kid starts taking perspectives that I don't like? So each of these places can be somewhat um, difficult. Got it. So one thing that I've uh, sort of, this is a good, probably a good segue into is advice for sort of aspiring people who, who are thinking about taking that next step. And this next step could be anything, but it's, it's a, it's a step that's better than the current step where they are. It's, it's a step up and it could be becoming, building their own, starting their own business. It could be getting a promotion or managing a team, but these people are not necessarily um, yet the most confident people in the world. And this will go back to what we initially spoke about. And these people have innately, they, they do want to be that person, but they just don't know how to get there. And they don't, and they feel inadequate on their side because they just don't see how they could potentially be that person. And there's a lot of resistance to, to, See there, so it's, you know they can see the goal, but they just don't know how to get there. How do you know when someone or when you're ready as an individual to step up to be that better person? Are there signs that you should look for? Are there is there something where you wake up one morning and all of a sudden you feel like you're ready for that that uh, that new position? How does one person? Um, become self-aware, but they also need to understand whether they're actually ready for the role or not. So a lot of the time growth is just foisted upon us, right? We, we, the context changes and we don't have any choice. So our readiness, it's like, how do we get ready after we need to? So, um, so there's a, you know, a, I don't think anybody is really ready to be a parent the first time they become a parent, right? The, this rocks your world in a way that you think afterwards, oh, I was completely unprepared for this, no matter how prepared you thought you were. So, and similarly, every chief executive I've ever worked with tells me in, in some way or another, I was not prepared for many of the pieces of this role, even though, you know, the people I work with are like insanely smart and competent and well-prepared. When you get a big promotion, when you have a big step up, one of the things you'll notice is I, I, I am not fully formed enough to do this, which is great because that's the growth edge, right? That's the thing that we're stepping into. You are also asking a different question, which is how do I like prepare myself to be ready? How do I notice signs? Um, Often when you notice signs, you're like uh, probably a little bit late. Like when, when I notice I, I have like this deep need for something 
that challenges me or that stretches me or whatever. It probably means you've been a little too long in the same place. Um, uh, we, we, can, we can have these dreams that live out in front of us and we can get more and more frustrated with ourselves for not going after those dreams. And that's probably a sign that we need to take not huge steps, but small steps in the direction of that space in some way or another. And so can we notice that that longing in us um, earlier and earlier so that we can take these smaller steps instead of uh, like drilling down into real frustration with ourselves about it. Mm-hmm. Is there something you just, said about, sorry, like just, imposter syndrome then? Oh my goodness. Um, is there something to be said about imposter syndrome? Yes, everybody has it. Like everybody has it in some way or another. Basically, it's just the most common thing in the world. Um, and so I think if we stop thinking of it as a problem, and start saying, this is what it means to be human and stretching, is you think, am I, am I really doing it? Um, am I really supposed to be here? And instead of saying, oh, that's a problem, you need to get rid of it, you say, oh, look, I'm human. Look at me being human today. Um, and do I allow that to change You know what actions I take? No, I'm gonna try not to, because I understand that this is a thing my nervous system does when I'm stretching. And this is this is the thing that's going to arise for me. Am I gonna need to get rid of it? I'm gonna need to not get rid of it because it's like saying my breathing is really annoying and so I'd like to breathe less. So what do I do? I try to figure out how to create the conditions where it doesn't get in my way. So I think that's the thing we work on. How do I recognize my imposter syndrome, understand it as a really human feature and then move ahead anyway. Great advice. And we'll wrap it up there. That was amazing. Great conversation. We finally got there in the end after all the hiccups in between. Uh, but this was really insightful for me. And I hope it will be insightful for uh, the rest of the audience as well. And uh, I'll put all the links in the show notes and people, the ways to connect with you as well. Uh, but thank you so much, Jennifer, for your time and really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Barry. It's been great talking to you today.